Good morning. This is NPR News. I'm Brant Williams in for Angela Davis. According to the latest Uniform Crime Report released last month by the BCA, the number of reported violent crimes in Minnesota last year went up by 17% compared to the previous year. Now, that includes a record high number of murders, and much of those numbers are driven by rising crime in larger cities. And of course, that trend is also mirrored by other large cities across the country. However, some suburban communities are also experiencing upticks in certain types of crimes. Recently, the police chiefs of Crystal, Maple Grove, Plymouth, and New Hope told Fox 9 TV that this year they're seeing a level of violence they haven't seen before. Now, this morning, my guests and I are going to talk about crime trends occurring outside the state's large cities, like what's happening in suburbs and smaller communities. And I want to hear from you. If you live outside Minneapolis Minneapolis or St. Paul, how safe do you feel? Now, to be clear, I just don't want this to be a forum about fear-mongering. I'm really looking for some, for the most fact-based assessments we can produce on the state of public safety outside of the big cities. So you can give me a call or tweet me at BrantMPR. Now, we're going to start our conversation this morning with two experts on the subject. Ralph Weisheit is a distinguished professor of criminal justice at Illinois State University, and he's conducted extensive research on rural crime and rural justice. And he's joining us this morning from Normal, Illinois. Ralph, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we're also joined by Walter Kessaretti. He is the director of the Research Center on Violence and a professor of sociology at West Virginia University. He specializes in research on violence against women in rural areas. And he's coming to us today from Morgantown, West Virginia. Walter, thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. And later this hour, we're going to be joined by Julie Tesh, who is the president and CEO of the Center for Rural Policy and Development. But first, I want to start by talking to Ralph uh, about the type of research you do. Now, as I mentioned in my intro, intro uh, violent crime has increased in cities across the country over the past year. But what do we know about crime trends in rural areas, especially over this last year? Well, one of the things you see pretty consistently over time is that rural and urban crime trends follow a similar path. In other words, when crime goes up in urban areas, it goes up in rural areas. But the difference is that the crime rate is much lower in rural areas. Right. Uh, but I'd be surprised if you found that what's happening in rural was dramatically different from what's happening in urban. Right. And um, and historically speaking, I mean, obviously, um, th- there's been a uh, – from the 90s where we saw a, a heightened uh, level of violent crime uh, – of, of higher levels that have started to steadily come down. And we've had a couple bumps along the way, little ski jumps along the way. But where we are right now, um, do you get a sense that, that um, is there any way to tell if this is going to keep um, going up the types of increases we've had? Or um, is this maybe another ski jump, especially in rural areas? Uh, the basic answer is no. There's no way to tell. Um, we're, we're better at hindsight than at foresight. Right. Tell me, how much, as far as the data, how much data is actually available about crime outside of metro areas? You know, it's tough because, you know, you're talking about data from the Uniform Crime Reports, but those are voluntarily submitted by agencies. And if you have a large agency with its own research staff, uh, they're very likely to, to provide everything to the feds and to show up in these reports. If you're a small agency with three officers, it's a lot easier to just say, you know, I'm really busy. I can't 
spend all my time filling out these forms and they may be less likely to report things. Right. Um, Walter, let me bring you into the conversation about um, your area of expertise. And I'm wondering if um, when we're trying to assess the level of violent crimes in, in rural communities, how much does domestic violence play into that? Oh, it plays a major role. In fact, uh, using the National Crime Victimization Survey, uh, my colleagues and I discovered uh, that for all types of violence against women, the rates are higher in rural compared to suburban and urban areas. And I've scrutinized literature and studies accumulated around the world, and this is a constant. Uh, as well, uh, homicide, domestic homicides, are, and there are not many studies in the U.S., but those that were done uh, show higher rates in rural than in urban areas. Right. And, and I want to uh, ask you, well, tell me, I, I, let's walk back just a second, because you mentioned something that I think is very interesting that maybe a lot of people aren't aware of. You said that the rates of domestic um, violence uh, maybe hi- are, are higher in rural areas than in sub, uh, suburban and urban communities. Why is that? Yes, they are. Well, a number of factors, uh, and I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Geographic isolation, um, lack of services, services that are available are inadequate. Uh, Many abusive men belong to an old boys network uh, that consists of criminal justice officials who are friends with abusive men. Rural communities uh, tend to be more patriarchal in nature than urban and suburban areas. Um, You have um, also male peer support dynamics. In other Mm -hmm. words, you have a larger, larger proportions of men with friends who are abusive and who encourage the abuse of women. We have sound research on that. Uh, Gun ownership plays a very uh, big role. Right. Uh, Consider Canada, uh, Canada, 50 percent of uh, domestic homicides uh, involve firearms in rural communities. Right. And Canada has a very strict gun legislation, as you know. Sure, sure. And and, and that, I, I really want to get to the issue of um, uh, focus more on the issue of, of, of gun violence in rural areas compared to urban areas in a second. But I also want to start getting to some callers because we are getting some folks who are calling in. And, and so I want to go to, um, uh, let's see. Well, we had somebody on the line who who is actually in Minneapolis now. He said he used to live in Fairfax, Minnesota. Uh, he said he lived there about five years ago um, before moving to the metro area. And he said he felt safe there uh, to the point where he wouldn't even lock his doors uh, at night. And I'm wondering, um, either of you, maybe I'll go to Ralph first. Have you gotten that sense from people who, um, do people still not lock their doors, folks in rural communities? Or are you uh, are you hearing that? Yeah, Uh But, you know, one thing, this really points out an important issue here. When we talk about rural, people like to talk about it as if it's one thing. But, in fact, there's tremendous variation from one rural area to another. So when you're talking violence, for example, um, that's not true across the board. In the same way that if you talk about homicides in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, you, you don't say every single place in New York is dangerous. Right. You have pockets that are particularly dangerous, and you have the same thing in rural areas. And there are a lot of rural areas where people do justifiably feel safe and do maybe just forget to lock their doors. 
Uh, of course, um, when we talk about urban crime, we often hear about gangs, drugs, and guns. And so, uh, Walter, or actually, no, Ralph, let me start with you first. Um, does the research show that, that those three factors are also um, driving certain types of crime, violent crime, in rural areas? Well, not so much gangs in the in the way they look in urban areas, but and guns are an interesting issue. And I would agree with Walter on the issue of guns and domestic violence. But when you're talking about other kinds of crimes, guns actually play a lesser role than they do in cities, even though guns are more available. Uh, you know, there are about thirty thousand people a year who are intentionally killed by guns, and there was an interesting study where they found that. Overall, there's a figure out there, but in urban areas, the number of people, the, the rate at which people are killed by guns is actually higher for homicides. Hmm. In rural areas, the higher figure is for suicides. But when you mesh the rural-urban together, you end up with this kind of average. But um, Guns are just used in a different way. I, I remember interviewing a probation officer and asking him about, you know, in a rural area, asking about gun problems. I said, do you have a lot of problems with guns and, and crime? He said, oh, it's a terrible problem. There's always someone breaking into somebody's house and stealing their guns. Right. Well, that's not an answer you'd have gotten in a city. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, Ralph, you mentioned um, I've I've done some coverage of this this particular issue of the difference between uh, the sense of uh, what you might call gun culture between um, urban and, and rural residents. And um, from the experts that I spoke to for that story, there was a sense that in uh, rural areas that people relied on their guns for many things, for, for hunting, for protection, because living so far away from a law enforcement agency, it might take them a much longer time to get to you if you need help. But it was also seen as something that if they were not, if they're at a period in their life where they did not feel like they could go on, that it was also a tool used in suicides. Um, and so I think that's what the, you're telling me, that the data kind of supports that, correct? Yes. And, and you know, it, I always find it fascinating when people argue about guns because people from urban areas simply have a different image of guns than people in rural areas do, and they often talk past each other. Right. Um, Walter, about your, you were mentioning too about how guns play a role in domestic violence and in particular domestic homicides. Um, is it still, have you found that there is, a, I think the prevailing research is, shows that um, women are at risk in households where there are firearms um, to be killed by a partner using a firearm than when there's not a firearm in the home. Does that hold true for rural areas as well? Oh, very much so. Let me give you an example, if I may. Uh, I interviewed 43 rural southeast Ohio women uh, who endured brutality that few of us could possibly imagine. These were women who wanted to leave or trying to leave in the process of leaving or had left their uh, intimate male partners. So 58% of them said their male partners had guns and some were threatened with them. Um, and gun ownership is strongly related to intimate femicide. And um, rural culture, with its acceptance of firearms for hunting and self-protection, um, according to Neil Websdale's research and mine, uh, it includes a code among certain men that accepts the casual use of firearms to intimidate wives and intimate partners. Um, 
And in urban areas, it's more difficult for abusers to discharge their weapons and go undetected. Uh, see, people, in, especially around deer hunting season, are more familiar with the sound of gunshots and often attribute the sound to um, legitimate uh, uses such as hunting. Uh, for There was a, 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 a terrible murder here in December 1st, 2014. A man killed his... Um, ex-partner and two of her lovers and uh, a woman living next door to the deceased woman um, heard gunshots. She was drinking coffee at home Mm -hmm. and she heard four gunshots and she didn't pay attention to it. And she said, Oh heck it's deer season. I thought they were just deer hunting. Right. But uh, often these hunting subcultures involve male bonding rituals that encourage the, uh, the control and domination of women. And uh, we have a colleague, Amanda Hall Sanchez, who's done some fantastic research on the male hunting subculture and violence against women. Of course, I want to emphasize that not all hunters are abusive. I don't want anyone to get the impression that I said For sure, for sure. Um, I want to bring in a caller. Actually, we had um, uh, Pete, who who I read part of his comment, but I'd like to have him kind of say it in his own words about his experience living in a smaller community. Pete is now in Minneapolis, but I, I believe, Pete, thanks for calling. You you did used to live in a, in a much smaller community. Tell us again what that experience was like for you. So I'm originally from um, southeastern South Dakota, now down near Sioux Falls, um, but then we moved to Fairfax for a job. Um, and Fairfax was a great community. It's probably 1,200 people. Um, it's an elderly community. Um, you know, we were kind of the new people in town and people knew who we were, uh, right away that we bought so-and-so's house and that's where we're living, which was kind of weird, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a close knit community. Um, and I really enjoyed it out there because I had so many neighbors that were a little, you know, maybe nosy I'll say, but also (laughs) they were very caring to where they would, um, they would see the comings and goings. And so if something was, off, you know, we kind of knew about it. And, um, you know, there was even one instance where a, um, some medication that was supposedly signed for that I happened to be outside, um, for a neighbor of mine that, you know, a guy had dropped it off and said he got a signature when in fact he didn't get a signature because no one was home. And I saw the whole thing, you know, and so it's just little stuff like that. And you see that in the city too. I mean, I do, um, work in Minneapolis. And, you know, so there are certain sections, I guess, that you can tell that, you know, this neighborhood is, you know, close knit and they kind of have bonding experiences together. Um, and then I think there's just such an array or such a, um, diversity in the city from, you know, uh, let's say Franklin Avenue compared to, uh, Mount curve Avenue. Sure. You know, and it's just, it's, it's amazing to me on just, how different it is to where in a town like Fairfax, um, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's really three blocks, five blocks of the city, yeah. but, um, very interesting. And, uh, yeah, I'll let you get back to the callers and, um, well, thanks Pete, for taking my call. Yeah. Pete, thanks for that. I appreciate it. You had, uh, several different things in there. I think I'd like, um, I guess to, to comment on, um, uh, Ralph, just about, you know, this idea that you have, um, uh, you know, the, the, occasional nosy neighbor or just folks who are very tight knit in that way. And I I just wonder what impact you think, um, you know, the fact that you have a lot of 
people in smart communities who know each other, know a lot about them, uh, if if that has um, an impact on the types of crime that you see and, and perhaps the, the lower levels of crime? It has an impact in a bunch of ways. I mean, you know, I think it's interesting. Walter talked about, you know, reporting from the crime victim survey, an image that's very different from official numbers. And and I think the reality is that official numbers in rural areas get really sketchy. Um, police are often dealing with things informally, and they're often not responding if 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 they feel it's something the community wouldn't be too upset about, you know, rather than taking the kid to juvenile hall, they'll take the kid back to his family and talk about it and, and give him a stern lecture. Um, and so even getting a picture of rural crime can be a challenge. And uh, I'd like to ask, um, I, I definitely want to get into more about uh, policing in smaller communities, but real quickly, um, I think, Ralph, you've done some research on this, and I want to ask Walter as well uh, um, after you comment, but about the difference in policing. You mentioned that there are uh, – you're likely to more likely to have officers who live in the areas and maybe have different relationships with the people they police. Give me a sense of what the research says about how that type of relationship uh, impacts the, the types of crime and the levels of crime in, in rural areas. Well, again, in rural areas, uh, you cannot be anonymous and be a police officer. You're going to live in the area that you work. You're going to go to the grocery store that everyone else goes to. Um, I, I have talked to small town police chiefs who will say things like, if I want to go to a movie, I have to go to the next town because if I go to the movie house in my town, there'll be people coming up to me asking about their cases and hmm. I, I can't be left alone. Um so, so there is this uh, connection between the police and the community, which can be good or can be bad. It, it can be good in that police can, again, solve problems informally. They don't always have to turn to a formal system, but it can be bad if there's a culture that supports, in the case of uh, Walter's work, that supports uh, domestic violence or that supports racism. If, if the general culture is like that, that's going to be reflected in the police at a pretty strong – there's a lot of pressure on police to follow those community norms. Right, right. Walter, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, do you see that as being a factor when uh, uh, maybe a law enforcement officer is familiar with uh, a man who is um, the being accused by a partner of, of committing violence? And do they treat that person differently than they would somebody they didn't know? Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, the 43 women in one study I've conducted, uh, none of them had anything to, good to say about the criminal justice system. Uh, most of them talked about how their, their abusers uh, were friends with uh, police officers and judges. Uh, and so <laughs> what Ralph's saying is quite, quite interesting. Now, I, it, it's a little bit more complex um, for example, there's this concept that comes out of urban studies, urban crime studies, um, and it's called collective efficacy. And it refers to mutual trust among neighbors combined with a willingness to act on behalf of the common good, hmm. specifically to supervise children and maintain public order, which is what the, the caller was basically talking about. At this point's well taken given that many rural citizens, including police officers who live in rural areas, are less tolerant of many crimes and more likely to st 
strongly support punitive approaches to issues of crime than people from metropolitan areas. But collective efficacy takes different shapes and forms. So while a rural, what I found in my research and others have found in other countries such as Tanzania and um, studies of farm crime as well, is that um, communities may be organized in such a way as to um, prevent stranger danger, right. you know, break and enters and so on, mm-hmm. but uh, are also organized in such a way as to maintain a patriarchal social order that contributes to violence against women. Right. So I want to go. It's, it's, it's very nuanced. Right. Right. And I want to talk more about that too. And um, but before we go to a, a news break, I do want to get in another caller um, who's uh, giving us a call. This is uh, Tim, who is in Ely. Tim, thanks for calling. Uh, what would you like to contribute to our conversation this morning? Well, I find it really interesting, and uh, I like all the info. Um, you know, we live out quite rural, and we don't. In- Intentionally lock our house. Our keys are in our vehicles. We don't lock them, and uh, we feel very safe. And our neighbors are, you know, very few of us around, but we watch each other well. And we hardly ever even see the sheriff deputies come down our road. It's mm-hmm. a dead end road. Twice a year, you know, if they come, you're wondering what's going on. But right. we feel very safe. Um, but I, I, I do hear that in that cloistered environment. There could be domestic abuse we just don't know about. But the other thing is, is our our deputies and law enforcement are part of our community. Their spouses work with us. We go to church with them or play hockey. And and I do think that sometimes things are taken home. Uh, You know, you're a kid here. If you mess up, you're not forever gone. You get, you know, you get three strikes more often than not. Sure. So they get the benefit of the doubt. Right. Yeah. You get brought home to your parents first it doesn't right away go to the court always i mean sometimes it does but i'm just saying that we all live together and know each other's names and you know that can be good and bad i'm sure depending on the culture but um we feel very safe and you know we're not uh crazy gun people but (laughs) almost everybody i know has a gun or sure and axes to split wood and yeah. and violent implements that we use as tools. Right. But I could totally see any of those being used to intimidate people. I think it's all that culture is right. kind of what it is. Tim, thanks so much for your perspective there and um enjoy uh, I hope things are well in Ely. Uh, it's one of my favorite places to to visit. And I'm going to bring into our conversation um Julie Tesh. She is the president and CEO of the Center for Rural Policy and Development. Julie, thank you for joining us this morning. Well, thank you for having me on. Well, Julie, I want to start with you um, and talk a little bit about your background. Um, You live in a small community in southern Minnesota. Um, And tell us a little bit of the story about um, how you came to live there. Sure. So I grew up on my family's farm in rural Waseca County, so south of Mankato, a little town of Waldorf, just over 200 people, and grew up on my family's dairy farm there. And uh, In the early 90s, when I graduated from high school, I came up to the University of Minnesota and uh, was a student and then worked at the university and lived in the St. Paul, Minneapolis area for over 15 years. And uh, from there, I moved to Indianapolis, and then I moved to the Washington, D.C. area and worked in Washington, D.C. for four years. And about it was four years ago now that I moved back 
to the farm. So I was gone well over 25 years from rural Minnesota and and made the conscious choice to come back to rural, even though I love St. Paul. Um, Gosh, St. Paul is my second home, but, you know, I moved back to rural Minnesota very consciously and it's, it's been a good move. Oh, I think we may have lost Julie. We'll get her back on the line and continue uh, with her story. Uh, we're also joined, um, we've got Ralph and Walter on the line. Uh, Ralph, let me start by asking, I want to go back to something that we'd started talking about, and that is um, why there is such, um, not as much information, not as much data or research on rural crime trends. Why is that? Um you know, it's a great question. I think the reality is that most big agencies that would, you know, maintain data like that are in urban areas. Most researchers uh, have been in urban areas. Uh, you're now seeing a, a flood of rural research, but that's relatively recent in in terms of the history of our country. And, you know, you meant, you've mentioned several times suburbs. Uh, what's interesting is we've had tons of urban research. We're starting to see lots of rural research. There's still a huge gap in terms of suburban research. We know very little about it, except I, I do know that in terms of policing, it's actually more dangerous to be a police officer in the suburbs than in the major cities. Wow. Well, I, I want to get to that in, in a minute because I do want to try to touch more on suburbs as well. And that's something that we haven't had a chance to really talk as much about. But I think we did get Julie back on the line. Julie, are you with us? Hello, I am. Okay. Sorry about that. Sometimes, sorry. you know, phone lines just go kaput. Um, and you, were gonna, you were getting ready to tell us um, what led you to, to move back to southern Minnesota. Yeah. So when I lived in Washington, D.C., I was sexually assaulted. I'm a survivor of rape. And so when I was out there, that happened about a year into when I moved there. And so I lived there another three years and worked there. And um, I enjoyed living in Washington, D.C., but I moved home because the pace was too much and just safety. Um, The person who assaulted me was a stranger, and it took a long time for... um, him to get put behind bars or to even get get the process going. And so for my own personal safety, I felt it was better for me to move back to uh, to rural Minnesota. So I wasn't uh, my PTSD. So I wasn't constantly, you know, swiveling my head every time I'm walking down um, right. the sidewalk. Right. Um, and I want to talk more about um, some of the research that, that you do and what your organization is doing. Uh, but I will also am trying to get some uh, more voices in here from our listeners. And, and I believe we got somebody on the line um, who would like to contribute to this conversation. I think um, she'll have something um, interesting to contribute. Uh, let's go to uh, Janelle. She's in Minneapolis. Janelle, thanks so much for giving us a call. Uh, what would you like to say this morning? Hi. Um, So I'm just calling in because my father grew up in a small town in South Dakota, a town of 500. And I'm listening to these dynamics about how how crime is handled in the, you know, urban setting versus uh, rural. And I think this also goes with mental illness and addiction. Uh, When my dad was six years old, his father had committed suicide. Hmm. Um, and left behind a family of 10 children. And when the sheriff came, it was determined that the town could not handle a suicide. And that it would be released as a hunting-related act. 
So you said they they try to make it sound like it was a hunting related accident, not a suicide. Wait, and that's what it was listed as. Right. And so these ten kids grew up never being able to discuss the fact that their father committed suicide, never got the mental help in dealing with that, and had to go along with this saving of that their dad died of a hunting accident when he indeed didn't. And then, you know, as the family grew and my uncle had kids, my cousin um, was 16. She lived in a rural town as well, Mm -hmm. developed a meth addiction, and got into a pretty severe accident when she was 16 under the influence of meth. She crashed her car, flew through the windshield, right? She got medical treatment, but she was never, never punished. And... She continued math, and every time she had an incident with her addiction, the police would come to her parents' house, say, no, 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 you can't do this. Huh. Um, but she was never in trouble for her her meth use or her drug use, whereas, you know... You think there would have been did, different... I mean, you think that would have been different if she had lived in uh, an urban setting, perhaps, where the law enforcement did not know her family or know her? Oh, uh, without a doubt. And I think it would have been better for her addiction, you know, had she would have been faced with some sort of intervention, treatment, um, some community service. And because she was because that didn't happen, I think that largely contributed to her her demise and even in worse addiction to meth. And, And so with what I can say with these two experiences. And with going back to these rural areas, right, because a lot of my aunts and uncles still farm, um, I feel like the rural areas almost take on an Eastern culture of saving face, right? Hmm. Like, you don't want to embarrass the family, you don't want to embarrass the family name, and you don't also want to embarrass the community. And so sometimes I think when it comes to crime, when it comes to addiction, when it comes to mental health, if it brings a lot of shame onto the family or the community, I think people are more apt to deal with it privately. Wow, yeah. And although some benefits, it also has some some severe uh negative aspects to right. it as well. Janelle, as thank you so much for that. I, I, I think you've got a, you've offered several things that I want my guests to, to respond to because I think those are um, uh, probably widespread sentiments as well with, with others. And uh, Julia, since I've got you on the line here, I want to get you uh, a chance to, to react to what Janelle said. Um, does some of that sound familiar to you? Absolutely. Um, yeah, Janelle, thanks for, for bringing that up because there is that, that shame. I know when I moved back, um, nobody knew about my assault. Um, people just didn't really know why I moved back to the farm because why would this person who's successful out in Washington, D.C. move back? And, you know, I didn't let it be known for about six months that, you know, about my assault and why I moved back. And, you know, there was a lot of deliberate thought put into that because I did not want to bring shame to my family. And I know from what Janelle is saying too, you know, with with drug use, with mental health issues, there is that shame. And in small towns, people do talk. And so, yeah, it definitely, there's a lot more behind closed doors. I would say, Um, you know, it, it is what it is. And, and, you know, I, I will say in rural areas, 
people are realizing more of the mental health issues. I was talking with law enforcement from Waseca County and asking them, you know, what some trends are. And they're like, the mental health and the drug use are just through the roof. And I think a lot of that with mental health is because they're recognizing it more, Hmm. but they don't have the resources to be able to take care of that. So like Janelle said, you kind of take care of it family-wise behind closed doors. And so it, it's very difficult. Right. Ralph, um, in your research, um, what what type of influence um, does drug addiction in in rural areas play in in crime trends? Well, it's a huge issue because we again, until recently, when we've seen overdose deaths in rural areas, until then, and until we saw meth in rural areas, until then, we tended to think of drugs as just an urban problem. But they've they've always been in rural areas, and I would note that there are there's a common theme here whether you're talking about drug treatment, mental health treatment, or domestic violence shelters, and that's the issue of transportation. People often have trouble getting to drug treatment, getting to mental health treatment, because it may be far enough away. They may not have convenient transportation. There are no bus services. There are typically no cabs, uh, maybe Uber if you're lucky. Um, But just getting to services is often a real challenge. Um, Walter, when it comes to uh, the influence of, of drugs and, as we've seen in some communities, the uh, addiction taking a toll, um, what role does that play in, in the type of research you do and, and when it comes to domestic violence? Well, it's very strongly connected. Um, many of the abusive men spend time uh, hanging out with their male friends, doing drugs and uh, drinking and During the course of these activities, there's a lot of um, sexist talk. Uh, Pornography consumption has increased significantly in rural areas due to the decreasing digital divide. Mm -hmm. And we now have research showing that rural boys uh, consume pornography more than urban and suburban boys. And today's pornography is... Uh, well, we live in a post-Playboy world in which much of today's pornography is violent and racist. Yeah. Um, I, should, I would also like to mention that, if I can, I live here in West Virginia. Most of West Virginia is rural. There isn't a city that's large, that has 100,000 people or more. In fact, the state capital, Charleston, only has 49,000 people. Yeah. Uh, West Virginia is also the opioid overdose capital of the country. Yeah. Uh, we, according to Centers for Disease Control, we rank number two in heroin overdose. Meth is a major, major problem. Right. And we're seeing uh, COVID is also, I must mention, it's con- it has increased the rates of domestic violence in rural areas. Connecting with Ralph, it's you know, transportation is a real problem. Oh, for sure. COVID just makes it makes it even worse. Right, right. Because they're trapped at home with these abusive men who control their internet, their telephone. So that's something that needs to be examined as well. Right. I want to get to another caller as well. We've got um, uh, joining our conversation. This is Scott in Independence. Uh, Scott, thanks for giving us a call today. What's your, your question or comment for our guest today? Well, you were asking how you know safe we feel. Um, and, you know, out here in Independence, we're sort of a rural suburban community of Hennepin County. Um, it's just before you get out into Wright County. And, you know, I'd say we feel very safe out here. Um, we don't have a lot of crime. You know, there may be some petty theft that goes on. I don't know. But, you know, not it, it's certainly not apparent. 
our neighbors all watch out for each other. We're sort of in a neighborhood area out here, and so everybody keeps an eye on each other. And then, you know, I think the one thing that's been interesting for us, you know, over the last couple of years, several years, um, and it's been more about uh, keeping yourself out of harm's way, mm-hmm. you know, we really just don't go down to Minneapolis-St. Paul anymore. Really? Um, you know, there's no no need to. You know, I, I feel like, uh, you know, there's plenty to do where we live and, right. you know, in, in the suburbs and everything else that we could go to, restaurants and uh, there's even plays out here and things like that. So right. there's plenty of cultural and uh, attractions and things to do. Well, Scott, what about um, going to, um, uh, and I'm curious just because I know there's a uh, hear talk, people, you know, they see the news. Um, there's another shooting in Minneapolis or St. Paul somewhere. And um, do you get a sense that you wouldn't be safe if you went to Minneapolis, say, to go to a ball game at Target Field or a Vikings game at U.S. Bank Stadium? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd be okay there so long as I could park close, you know. And uh, But if, you know, getting out in the city and really getting out and around and out into the city, you know, it comes back to just if you want to be safe, keep yourself out of harm's way. Mm-hmm. And that's the number one rule um, in general for anybody who wants to stay out of a violent situation. Don't put yourself in that situation. So, you know, we've made the conscious decision that, hey, you know, we're just not going to go there unless it's really, truly needed. Right. Um, I can catch the twins on TV. I can catch the Vikings on TV. And I think your guests, you know, one of the things that I've observed in their comments, it almost seems as if they they want to make the rural areas look violent in a similar way to the cities. And I just don't see that. Uh, I travel all over rural Minnesota and South Dakota. And, well, I would imagine there's some, you know, there's domestic violence going on. Right. You know. There's, you know, fights that happen outside of bars. I know that happens, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. It's not the same level of just violence. And, okay. you know, um, one of the, the the key things, I thought maybe taking this conversation in a different direction is, you know, it, with the police who will pick someone up and let's say they take their kid home sure. to the parents and everybody sits down and, hey, you know, let's <laughs> let's talk to the parents about this and be a a part of the community. It actually is the way that I think Minneapolis, St. Paul should be doing their policing. Right. You know, they need to have the police by force, but they also, you know, more of that would be probably in line with what I think a lot of the people in Minneapolis are talking about wanting uh, in their community. Right. Scott, well, thanks very much for your, for your comments. Uh, you got a lot, again, more, a, a lot of topics there. I want my guests to, to weigh in on. Um, and I'll just tell you as somebody who's covered uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul uh, police uh, for a while, particularly the Minneapolis, uh, there are police leaders who tell me, used to tell me all the time, they would love their officers to have the time to sit down and take that kid home and have a talking to with his, with the, the kid's parents, but they have a bunch of 911 calls to get to. So that's, that's another difference between, I think, rural and urban policing. But I want to go to, um, Ralph, you've done some, um, some study about those differences uh, when it comes to urban and rural policing. Just give me some sense of, of responding to some of the things that Scott said. As a matter of fact, anything you, th- you, you thought was interesting. I, th- I think it's a really important point that we, we don't need to leave the impression that rural areas are just these hot spots of violence, although there are parts of rural areas where that's true. Uh, and one of the problems that uh, I think police officers and chiefs are getting more attuned to that the, the press doesn't always pick up on is this idea of uh, in, in 
research, we call it the, the small base. So if you have two homicides in your community and next year you have an additional one, you have three homicides, homicides have gone up by 50%. But right. if you have 100 homicides and ne the next year you have one more, it's hardly a blip. Right. And so you have these small starting numbers, and it's easy to get big percentage change when, right. in fact, the numbers are still quite small. And, again, rural areas, I, I think I said this at the beginning, but it's so important, rural areas vary tremendously. There are uh, many of them, probably most of them are extremely safe. But there are pockets, just as there are pockets within urban areas that are dangerous. Right. And uh, we need to be careful not to paint rural as if it's one thing. Right, right. Julie, I want to bring that to you, uh, your response to some of the things that, that Scott talked about. Yeah, just, just going off of what was previously said, there's so much nuance in rural and urban. And I think in this society, if we're used to having quick information that we're very quick to decide like, oh, you know, Minneapolis is bad, it's crime-ridden. Well, it's not, you know, or rural is crime-ridden. No, it's not. There's a lot of nuance. Um, just like was previously said, it really depends upon the community. And, yeah, I mean, it, I, I can I can firsthand tell you um, I'm going to be working at the State Fair here, helping with 4-H this next week um, with livestock and talking to families um, out in greater Minnesota. There's a definite fear of coming to the State Fair and coming to Minneapolis-St. Paul, and I've had to qualm a lot of fears just saying, no, that it, it is safe. Hmm. There are these safeguards in place. Um, but, you know, it's a lot of what you hear quickly on the news or in right. media or on social media. And so there's a lot of misinformation um, both ways, rural and urban. And so it's really hard to decipher that when you're not actively, you know, going to the Twin Cities or going to an urban area. So, you know, there's a lot of those stereotypes that go back and forth that, you know, it, we just have to try to help qualm that and and, and thoughtfully talk to people like, no, this is, this is what it's actually like. Right. Um, well, and yeah. I want to ask Walter uh, kind of the same question. I mean, what are some of the things that you want to make sure that, that people understand about, as Scott was saying, he was concerned that, you know, there may be this um, uh, perception that, 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 that you're trying to paint like this rural towns as being more violent than they are. But I, I think you were saying that, but when it comes to domestic violence, it's really hard to tell um, from the outside that that's going on? Well, yes, especially because of the privacy norms that were discussed by uh, uh, Janelle, and uh, that, that plays a very key role. Um, people keep it very much to themselves, uh, and many women are trapped and can't leave and can't speak. But I want to say something, that violence against women is a constant across urban and rural. And if right. you take college campuses like my place, we have a 34% female sexual assault victimization rate, mm -hmm. according to the Campus Climate Survey. And so women in general are at very high risk. In fact, the person who's most likely to kill you, beat you, and rape you is someone you know. Uh, and so I'm, it's not surprising that rural areas have such high rates of violence against women. They're higher than urban and suburban, but you have high rates in, in ur urban and suburban as well. Right, right. It's a constant. It's a constant. Globally, one out of every three women globally around the world will experience at least one form of physical or sexual assault. Right. 
I'm going to start um, winding down our conversation, but I want to get some last thoughts from each of you, just basically, and, and, and the question I'll put out there, and Ralph, I'll start with you. What do you think people should know who perhaps are not familiar with, um, I, I guess, I, I'm, I'm curious if, if you feel like there are some widespread misconceptions about rural crime that, that people should know about. That's, that's really the question I want you to, to address there. Well, I think, you know, the big one is one that Walter's already talked about, that domestic violence is not happening there. Um, I, I think there is a, a general impression that rural violence just doesn't happen. And it does happen. It happens at a lower level. For Aside from domestic violence, other kinds of, of violent crime tend to happen less often in rural. Right. But it does happen. Right. Walter, what about you? Final Final thought? With to- wholeheartedly with Ralph, um, it's rural communities are complex. But the problem we've had is that historically, crime in rural areas has been ignored, right. and um, we're not trying to create a moral panic here. We're trying to draw attention to uh, an issue that has long, for a long time, been ignored and trivialized. Right, right. Julie, what about you? What are some uh, prominent misconceptions you think about crime in rural areas? Well, you know, just what what both both people just said. It, there's so much the narrative that we hear, and the narrative that we tell ourselves. And is there crime? Absolutely, but it is at a less rate, a lesser rate. And I would say, you know, the petty crimes, the uh, things like that are, are are increasing, but the violent crimes, you know, they're still there. They're everywhere. It's society. Right. Right. But I do think, as a whole, in a rural area you know, I personally feel safer. Right. Well, that's all the time we have for our conversation today. And I really want to thank my guests, Ralph Weisheit, who is a distinguished professor of criminal justice at Illinois State University. We were also joined this morning by Walter DeCesaretti. He's the director of the Research Center on Violence, and he's a professor of sociology at West Virginia University. And we were joined by Julie Tesh. She's the president and CEO of the Center for Rural Policy and Development. And of course, I want to thank you all for your calls and comments. Our show today was produced by Samantha Matsumoto and Susan Davis. My name is Brant Williams, and you're listening to NPR News. You've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can hear Mike Mulcahy, Ewan Kerr, Catherine Richard, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.